0: The National Archives podcast series, Where There's a Will. Probate records for family history at the National Archives and beyond. Presented by Kate Jarman. If you're at the National Archives to research your family history, then you may already have searched the prerogative court of Canterbury wills and perhaps found a record of your ancestors' last wishes. But what was the PCC? And as it didn't process all the wills and administrations for the UK, where can you find other collections? What other records might exist? And most importantly for the family historian, what can they tell you about your ancestor? So I'm going to try and answer these questions by looking at why your ancestors made wills in the first place and what information they recorded. I'll look at the church court system, including the PCC, which dealt with the estates of the deceased up till 1858, the records it created and where and how you might find them. I'll look at the system after 1858, which centralised and simplified the process of probate. But as the search for a will proved after this date should be an easier process, my focus today will be on the pre-1858 system. Although my focus will be primarily on the system in England and Wales, I'll also briefly cover how to research and use Scottish and Irish wills and testaments. So, what is a will? The Oxford English Dictionary defines a will as a person's formal declaration of his intention as to the disposal of his property or other matters to be performed after his death, most usually made in writing. Or the document in which such intention is expressed. The person making the will is known as the testator, hence a person dying without having made a will is said to have died intestate or as an intestate. A will usually names a person or persons to carry out the terms of the will, known as an executor. The word testator clearly shares its origins with the word testament so at this point it might be helpful to briefly examine the relationship between a will and a testament. I'm sure you'll all be familiar with the phrase last will and testament, which might seem like a bit of a tautology. In fact, although will and testament are interchangeable in modern legal usage, they're actually two different legal instruments. The will referred to the testator's real property or real estate, that is land held by freehold, and the testament to their personal estate or personality, essentially everything else including money, debts, leases, goods and chattels as movable possessions. However, by the 16th century, both the will and testament are usually combined in a single document. So for the purposes of most family history research, this is what we're describing when we talk about wills. The 1540 statute of wills specified who could make a will, excluding only traitors, heretics, prisoners, slaves and the insane. A slightly larger group of people, not included in this list, who were not able to leave property in a will, were married women, who were not recognised as separate legal beings from their husbands and whose property automatically became his to dispose of upon marriage. Unless she was the Queen of England, who was g- exempt from this legal doctrine, or had been given special permission to do so by her husband, which was unusual, you can therefore be certain that a will made by a woman prior to the Married Women's Property Act of 1870 is that of a widow or a spinster, though these still account for roughly a quarter of all wills. Early wills tend to have only been left by wealthy gentry and aristocracy, Due to the expense of making and proving a will and the fewer possessions owned by the average individual. In general, people had far fewer possessions of value than they do today and less disposable wealth. Wills became more common from the 16th century onwards due to increasing levels of literacy and the growth of a middle class with goods of sufficient value to bequeath in a will. Writers on morals also encouraged the making of wills to prevent dispute and social rifts, encouraging the testator to dispose of his property in ways that promoted peace and harmony amongst family, friends and neighbours. Although wills were not exclusive to the middle and upper classes, most testators did have something of value to leave, although large numbers of serving soldiers and sailors, many of whom were quite poor, did also leave a will. However, the making of formal wills was far from universal, as, in the absence of a will, inheritance would follow the common law or or a local customary law, and a person's possessions, such as they were, were often informally distributed without dispute following their death. In general, making a will was relatively uncommon, even up to the mid-19th century, and those that did would often leave it as late as possible to avoid the unnecessary expense of making changes and to ensure that it was their final wishes that were acted upon. Apart from younger and middle-aged men with families to support, the other two most common types of testator were the wealthy with complex business and landholding interests and family affairs and elderly single women, whether widows or spinsters, who had no obvious heirs and wished to distribute a large number of small legacies amongst friends and relatives. In earlier centuries, there was also widely held superstition against making a will while still hale and hearty, meaning that those dying unexpectedly were often left intestate. Wealthy testators would usually have their wills drawn up by lawyers in much the same way as we would today, but valid wills could be drawn up by any literate person, Ordinary people might not have access to a trained lawyer and might well be illiterate, so in this case they could call upon a local figure with some experience of drawing up wills, such as a schoolmaster or a priest, to write the will for them. This was known as an attested will. The church was concerned to ensure that parishioners died in love and charity with all men, as the prayer book puts it, so it was considered a duty of clergymen to encourage and assist parishioners in drawing up wills. There were several books available in the 17th and 18th centuries, including many copies of the prayer book, which gave model forms of wills to be adapted as occasion demanded. This would usually involve an initial visit before the will was drawn up elsewhere. The will would then be read before the testator in the presence of witnesses for signing and sealing, and the testator's declaration (laughs) that I publish this, my last will and testament. Often the scribe was called back later to add a codicil substitute beneficiaries or otherwise alter the will. It was important to find someone both competent and trustworthy to reduce the chances of disputes, leading to costly litigation after the testator's death. Not all wills were drawn up by a third party. A holographic will was written by the testator himself in his own hand and had to have been witnessed by at least three credible witnesses. A third and less common type of will was known as a noncupative or spoken will. These were valid only when made in articulo mortis, on the point of death, when the testator was too gravely ill to write the will personally or employ someone else to do so. The testator was required to state his bequest verbally in front of three witnesses who were aware that he was making his will, and the will would be written down and signed by the witnesses as soon as possible after his death. Usually these would be heard at the bedside, but not always. It is recorded in the Leeds probate records, for example in the case of William Wally of Leeds Shambles, who died from the plague in 1648, that the deceased published his will from his chamber window in the presence of us who stood in the courtyard. (laughs) Due to their potential for causing disputes, these were made invalid in 1837, except for verbal declarations made by servicemen dying in action. However, in your own research, you may be more likely to find a copy of your ancestor's will made by the probate courts than the original document, in which case you will not find their signature or mark, and it may not be clear whether they wrote the will themselves. Original wills do survive amongst probate court records and in family collections in local archives, but the largest extant collections are the copies of wills made by the probate courts, which I'll discuss in a bit more detail shortly. As legal documents, often drawn up according to a published pro forma, wills tend to follow a standard form, they generally start with a preamble, identifying the test data by name, residence and occupation. This will be followed by a statement of their poor health but f- full mental capacity, such as being sick in body but sound in mind, or of full and perfect remembrance, included to fulfil the legal requirement of mental competence, and then often by a statement of their religious faith. This will usually be followed by their wishes for burial and the bequests of personal property, often including some form of charitable bequest or local benefaction, and of real estate if the testator held land. They then usually also name an executor or executors. Not all wills followed this format, but none were valid without the signature of the testator and witnesses or their mark where they were illiterate. Although they're usually relatively formulaic documents, wills are often unique resources for family history in recording the wishes and feelings of the test data. So, what can they tell you about your ancestor? They will usually, of course, tell you what the testator owned in more or less detail, from parcels of land to the furniture, like the infamous second-best bed left by Shakespeare to his wife. But they can also provide rich detail about all aspects of your ancestor and the life they lived. Will's name on average ten other people alongside the testator, making them a key source for researching family relationships. The first beneficiary is usually the widow or next of kin of the testator, with bequests made to other named beneficiaries within the immediate family whose relationship to the testator is usually stated. Wills often state the name of a daughter's husband, so knowing the date of a will can help narrow down the search for a marriage. Wills also state of children and minors, allowing inferences to be made about their ages. Remember that terms describing personal relationships are often described in a wider sense than the modern understanding. A brother or sister could be an in-law and a cousin might refer to any relative. Bequests may reveal other significant relationships in the testator's life and it is often worth seeking out the wills of named beneficiaries as well. It may be helpful to draw yourself a small family tree to illustrate the relationships described in a will, particularly in the case of wealthier individuals who left many individual bequests. The descriptions, whilst a rich source for family history, can get a little confusing. The will of Richard Turner of St Andrews Holborn, for example, proved at the PCC in 1768 leaves bequests to, amongst others, Miss Chapman, who is niece to my nephew Charles Dingley, and my cousins the Reverend Henry Taylor, Rebecca Taylor and Elizabeth Taylor, being the three children of my late cousin William Taylor, deceased, who died at the house of his son Henry, who is vicar of Portsmouth and rector of Crawley near Winchester. It is worth noting that the absence of a relative in a will may not indicate that they have been overlooked or snubbed by the testator. Inheritance law meant that in the absence of a conflicting bequest... One-third of the deceased's personal property was due to their wife and one-third to their children, so a testator might not choose to make alternative provision for them. You'll find some really helpful information on inheritance law in Mark Herber's book Ancestral Trails. Alternatively, a seemingly miserly bequest could mean that the relatives in question could already have been provided for. Provision may already have been made for a wife, daughters would often have property settled on them when they married, and a son may have been set up with an income long beforehand. A will may tell you about the testator's occupation, either in a reference in the preamble to the will, or perhaps in the structure of the will itself, like this one of John Smith of Kingston, proved in 1802, who, as you can see, was a mariner. Sailors were amongst the few groups who regularly made wills while still in good health, due to the danger and uncertainty of life on the seas, and sometimes recorded their wishes in pro forma wills, like this one. Sometimes a will might include surprising personal information, though perhaps not all are as intriguing as the 1630 will of John Hobson of Royton, Lancashire, hermaphrodite, which, apart from this tantalising crumb of information, is a typical example of a will from this period. Almost all wills, right up to 1858 and beyond, begin, in the name of God, Amen, and most include some statement of the deceased religious faith and hopes for his or her soul. It is difficult to know to what extent these really represent personal belief or whether they're simply reflective of a standard form for wills. But as the will should have been at least read back to the testator if it was not written by him personally, they probably broadly represent the views of the testator, so you may find clues to an ancestor's religious belief in a will. After the Reformation, these preambles were generally rephrased to represent a Protestant bias, so phraseology mentioning saints or the Virgin Mary or suggesting a more literal interpretation of Scripture may provide evidence of Catholic sympathies. You'll also find more information on non-Anglican wills in this book, Granum and Taylor's excellent Wills and Probate Records, which is an excellent read for uh, anyone doing this kind of research. Charitable bequests also provide evidence of a testator's moral or religious outlook. Whether or not they had been inclined to generosity and charity in life, it was common practice, particularly in the 17th and 18th centuries, for testators to set up local charities or to leave a bequest for local good works. Wealthier individuals might leave money for the establishment of a school or almshouses. Richard Turner, for example, whose complicated family I mentioned earlier, was a wealthy London haberdasher. In his will, he left, amongst many other bequests, £500 to St Bartholomew's Hospital and £5,000 in trust for the improvement of a charity school established by his father, Those with less to leave might give a one-off sum for a gift to the local community through the mending of a footway, perhaps, or commonly a sum left for the feeding and clothing of the poor of the parish. The wording of wills, as well as unusual bequests, can, if you're lucky, also give you an insight into your ancestors' character and opinions. Wills have probably documented testators' eccentricities and provided a forum to air their grudges for as long as they've been recorded. Lieutenant General Henry Hawley, for example, whose will this is, noted that I have written this with my own hand because I hate priests of all professions and have the worst opinion of all members of the law. He also had pretty clear views on his funeral arrangements, directing that my carcass may be put anywhere that is equal to me, but I will have no more expense or ridiculous show than if a poor soldier who is as good a man was to be buried from the hospital. Now we've looked at the typical content and structure of a will. It is important to understand a little about the process of probate, which proved that the will of the deceased was valid and legally allowed the transfer of their property to the beneficiaries of the will. It is also important to know what the process was where the deceased had not left a will, where the administration of the estate was granted to a named person or persons, as the records of administrations may also provide some personal details and will be a useful source for the family historian. Prior to 1858, when the system was brought under the control of the state, Probate and administration were granted through a hierarchical system of church courts that had developed over many centuries. The church courts existed alongside the secular courts and heard cases under canon law, although there was some overlap between their jurisdictions. There was no special system or court for non-conformists. They also uh, had their wills proved through the church courts. As well as other business relating to church matters, moral concerns and personal disputes, they dealt with testamentary affairs. In practice, this consisted of the granting of probate and administration and the resolution of testamentary disputes relating to the validity of the original will, granting of bequests or administration of the estate. Probate was granted by the court following the appearance of the executor or executors to swear an oath faithfully to inventory the goods of the deceased and execute the will, paying debts and legacies. Once the will was accepted as valid and probate granted, it was copied into the court will register annotated as proved before the court and filed with the court's records, and original wills do therefore survive in more or less complete collections in the probate records for many, but not all, church courts. The executor would then be issued with a copy of the will, with the text of the grant of probate attached, and a separate probate clause, a legal note confirming the grant, attached to the will by the seal of the court. This copy is sometimes referred to as a probate. For researchers looking at register copies of the wills, like the PCC ones here at the National Archives, rather than originals with the probate clause attached, you'll find the clause copied at the end of the main text. The grant of probate was also then recorded in the Probate Act book. Alternatively, if a person died intestate, a grant of administration could be made by the court by the issuing of letters of administration to authorise an appropriate person, usually next of kin or a creditor, to administer the deceased's estate though if the legal right of the intestate's wife or next of kin to inherit was clear and unchallenged, this was not obligatory. Administrations were not granted until at least 14 days after the death in order to give relatives time to ensure that there was no will amongst the effects of the deceased, and the distribution of the estate could not take place till a full year after the grant to ensure that all debts were fully discharged. General administrations were granted where the deceased died intestate but in some instances a limited grant might be made, limited to a particular part of the deceased's estate. Grants of the estates of soldiers and sailors, limited to their wages, were often made to creditors who had lent them money on the security of their wages. Administration could also be granted with will annexed, where a valid will existed, but its terms could not be fully met, for example, because the testator had failed to name an executor, or where an executor had died and was therefore unable to act. A summary record of grants of administration would be made in the Administration Act Book. The original letters of administration rarely survive in archives. These Act Books can be a useful resource for family history in the absence of a will. Although they record far less information than a will, they generally include the name of the deceased and administrator, a note of their relationship, the date of grant, and sometimes an approximate valuation of the estate. As well as the entry in the Administration Act Book, you may find useful information in an administration bond, which are found in many probate collections, including the PCC records here at the National Archives. Administrators from 1529 onwards were required to guarantee that they would discharge their duties by entering into a bond, often double the value of the deceased estate, with one copy retained by the court and the other by the administrator. These include the place of residence and signatures of the administrator and his or her guarantors, and in the absence of other evidence, may help give a rough estimation of the value of your ancestor's estate. The church administration and the church courts which oversaw it were arranged hierarchically. At the highest level, the country was divided into two provinces, Canterbury and York. The province of York had jurisdiction in roughly the north of England and the province of Canterbury over the south of England and Wales. Each province was presided over by an archbishop and each was split into a number of dioceses, Headed by a bishop. In turn, each diocese was split into several archdeaconries presided by an archdeacon. In turn, there were a number of rural deaneries within each archdeaconry presided over by a rural dean, each of which consisted of a number of parishes. To complicate matters further, a number of peculiar jurisdictions covered the areas surrounding cathedrals or areas currently or formerly held in diocesan or crown ownership. The courts which granted probate operated at provincial diocesan and archdeaconry level, as well as for individual peculiars. Peculiars were exempt from the jurisdiction of the diocese in which they lay, and exercised their own jurisdiction through peculiar courts usually held by cathedral deans and chapters. Before 1858, the amount of goods and property left by the deceased, and where those goods were, determined in which court a will was proved. As a rule of thumb, probate or administration would be granted at the lowest relevant court in the hierarchy, usually the archdeacon's court. So if a person held property in only one archdeaconry, his will would be proved at the relevant archdeacon's court. If he had goods in more than one archdeaconry, but all in the same diocese, probate would be sought at the bishop's court, known as a consistory court or a commissary court commissioned by the bishop. The rule of bona notabilia or noteworthy goods, required that the estates of people with property totalling £5 or more, £10 for those in London, in more than one diocese, should be dealt with by the provincial Archbishop's Court. Otherwise, a lower court should deal with it. The Archbishop's Courts for the provinces of York and Canterbury were known as the Prerogative Courts, from the prerogative of the Archbishop to grant probate and administration. Although the Prerogative Courts held equal jurisdictions over their respective province, The PCC exercised highest jurisdiction of all, dealing with wills relating to property in both provinces, as well as appeals referred from York. The Prerogative Court of Canterbury was actually held in London, not Canterbury, at the courts known as Doctors' Commons. The PCC records are now housed at the National Archives, under Department Reference, PROB, P-R-O-B, whilst those of the Prerogative Court of York are held at the Borthwick Institute in York. So how can you find where your ancestor's will was proved and where it is now? When you begin your search for a will, you may know little more about your ancestor than his or her name, approximate dates and perhaps place of residence. Your search will be guided by what you know in terms of the likely wealth and residence of the deceased. So, for an example, the will of a southern aristocrat is unlikely to have been proved in a northern archdeacon's court. It is important to keep in mind the rule of bona Notabilia, as it forms a crucial part of the probate and administration process. It was this rule that in part determined in which court a will was proved, and consequently where the documents are now located. When searching for probate records, therefore, it is worth extending your search beyond the most local court of the deceased to adjacent jurisdictions and higher courts, as neighbouring and superior courts may have been used for no obvious reason. Although the need to appear personally to prove a will or show evidence of administration, meant that testamentary business was usually dealt with at the most local court, lower in the administrative hierarchy. There was no prohibition against seeking probate at a higher court, provided the estate was over the £5 threshold. The value of this threshold decreased over time with inflation, making it less of a barrier to the proving of the wills of the less well-off. So you will find wills relating to individuals from every diocese in the PCC. Records of consistory, archdeaconry and deanery courts, as well as peculiar courts, are held at diocesan record offices, which are usually the relevant county record office. So, helpfully, you may be able to find records for several courts relating to one area at a single archives. In London alone, for example, a testator might have had their will proved at one of five separate courts, as well as the PCC, but the testamentary records of all five are now held at London Metropolitan Archives and are searchable on Ancestry. However, the large geographical size of some ancient dioceses means that their records may now be split over several sites. For example, the Probeck records of the Archdeaconry and Commissary Courts of Surrey, which were part of the Diocese of Winchester, are held at London Metropolitan Archives, whilst those for the Archdeaconry of Winchester and the Consistory <laughs> Court of Winchester are at Hampshire Record Office. From 1719 to 1858, the PCC further divided the business of probate and administration between five geographical seats, and a number of prob series are arranged in this way. So this may all sound pretty complex, but there are a number number of useful guides to the whereabouts of probate records held locally, including Granam and Taylor's book, which I showed you earlier, and Gibson and Churchill's Probate Jurisdictions, which list the different courts that had jurisdiction over a specific parish or area, as well as where those records might now be found. There is also an invaluable online resource in the form of the Family Search Historical Maps Tool, which allows you to search by place or parish name. Here I've put in Bury St Edmunds and lists relevant courts for that area under the Jurisdictions tab. So you can see for Bury St Edmunds, St John, those are possible probate courts. And that's at maps.familysearch.org. If you're lucky enough to be able to trace your family history as far back as the 17th century, note that along with other changes in legal practice and record-keeping brought in during the Commonwealth after the Civil War, the church courts, both local and provincial, were abolished and a central court for probate of wills and granting administrations was established. The records of these courts were incorporated into those of the PCC after the Restoration. So for a brief period, from 1651 to 1660, all probate records for England and Wales should be held at the National Archives. Although, like like anything in archives, that's not necessarily the case, as some northern wills were instituted without proper probate and are held at the Borthwick Institute. So how can you search for wills and other probate records for the PCC and for other church courts? The PCC wills, which are in series Prob 11, have been digitised and are downloadable on the National Archives website through Discovery. You can find our research guide to wills and administrations before 1858 in the Looking for a Person section of the website. And use the link in the guide to search the PCC wills by name. You click on Search Prerogative Court of Canterbury wills and you can search by name. Remember when searching probate records that the date given, in this case 24th of March 1759, is the date of the grant of probate or administration, not the date of death or the date of the will. Straightforward wills might take a couple of months to prove, but complicated or disputed estates could take many years, so you may need to extend your search over a period of years after the death of your ancestor. If your will wasn't proved at the PCC, once you've established the possible probate courts to search, the next step is to look for your test data in an index. Indexes have been published to most wills in local archives, and there are published will abstracts for many wills, which provide a detailed summary of the information in the will. As well as indexes held at local archives, you can find copies of many in the library here at the National Archives, as well as the Society of Genealogists. You can also view many indexes on microfilm at the London Family History Centre, which is temporarily housed in the reading rooms here at Kew, in many cases alongside microfilm copies of the original probate documents. In particular, they hold microfilm copies of the uh, Prerogative Court of Canterbury, or PCY, record copy wills. Will indexes and abstracts are also increasingly searchable online. In particular, Origins.net is bringing together many collections of indexes and abstracts in their national wills index. This is a subscription site, but they now claim to include indexes for 90% of English counties, (coughs) including the PCY, so it may be a very helpful resource if you're having difficulty locating a will. The genealogist also has a number of will indexes online. The importance of wills as a key resource for both local and family history has been recognised for many years, and some of these indexes were compiled long ago. Sadly, in a few cases, they remain the only record of a will. There are indexes and abstracts, for example, of wills proved in Somerset and Devon, many of which were destroyed by bombing in the Second World War. Many local record offices have integrated their will indexes into their online catalogue, making their probate records name-searchable online. And there have also been some fantastic projects to digitise local wills, such as the North East Inheritance Project of Durham and Northumberland probate records and Wiltshire wills, amongst several other counties. Welsh probate records, including bonds and inventories, which I'll come to shortly, as well as wills, can be name-searched and downloaded at the National Library of Wales website. If you've drawn a blank searching for a will, you may be looking for an administration in the Administration Act books. For the PCC there is no single comprehensive index to administrations, but you can look them up for different periods in a combination of published indexes and the indexes to wills proved and administrations in series Prob 12, arranged by year of the grant and then initial letter of the surname. The indexes provide references for the administration act books which are in Prob 6 and limited administration act books in Prob 7. The act books, like some other church court records, are in Latin until 1733, but you should be able to ask staff here for advice if you're having problems understanding them. For other church courts, administrations are generally less well indexed than wills, and for many, a handwritten index arranged by the first letter of the intestate surname may be the only means of <coughs> locating the document. Administration bonds for the PCC were filed separately from the record of administration, and are in series Prob 54 and Prob 46. Generally, bonds for the PCY and other probate courts are more easy to find as they're found together with the administration itself. Amongst the many other records created by and for the probate courts, probate inventories are another key source for family history, although they do not survive for all testators or intestates. To publicly identify the value of the deceased estate and demonstrate to the court that they were fulfilling their function honestly, executors or administrators were required to submit inventories with estimated costs of the deceased's movable property and accounts of the testator's estate, including debts and disbursements. If these survive for your ancestor's estate, they can be fascinating documents. The law stipulated that the appraisal of goods should take place within a few days of death and list all personal estate, so you may find anything from a bed to a book to a bodkin listed, as well as the testator's debts, They allow you to build up a picture of an individual through their possessions, which are often listed in great detail, room by room, making them a fascinating resource for family history. They often contain archaic and dialect terms, particularly in relation to farming equipment, furniture and utensils, so a book like Stuart Raymond's Words from Wills and Other Probate Records can be helpful to have to hand. This page from the copy of the probate inventory of Nicholas Browning of St Giles' Cripplegate, for example, which was produced as an exhibit in a PCC will dispute, shows that the contents of the back south room included a broken deal table and a gouty stool. Unfortunately, survival of inventories can be patchy and they are filed and catalogued in different ways for different courts. For the PCC, inventories can be found in a number of prob series and the majority can be searched on discovery by the name of the deceased. In probate collections elsewhere, inventories may be kept with the relevant will or administration or be filed as separate series, depending on the record-keeping practice of the court. Thus, indexes to inventories alone sometimes exist, but often they do not. Sometimes, but by no means always, they're referred to in the indexes to wills and administrations. Probate accounts, which list debts and disbursements, survive in far smaller numbers and are most likely to survive if a dispute over the will led to a court case. Wills or administrations might be disputed for a number of reasons, both before and after the granting of probate or letters of administration. These might include disputes over debts owed to or by the deceased, disputed inventories or accounts, or questions over the legal validity of a will or codicil, or further down the line, non-payment of legacies by the executor. Although these disputes represent only a very small proportion of testators and administrators, The records are rich in detail about family relationships and ill will. You'll often find two members of the same family as plaintiff and respondent in testamentary litigation. Often many witnesses or deponents were heard in each case, each giving their name, age, occupation and residence. And, as so often, where money is at stake, disputes became bitter with parties testifying to the negligence, questionable habits or bad moral character of the testator or each other. For example, accusing testators of drunkenness, which prevented them from making a valid will, or testifying that close relatives have willfully deprived them of their rightful property. These kinds of claims were held at all levels of church courts, and where the record survives, they are usually held in the same archives as the disputed will or administration. Appeal could also be made to a higher church court, or to the High Court of Delegates, the highest appeal court. Records of proceedings are usually in Latin until 1733, but the pleadings, including allegations and depositions of the witnesses, are usually in English. The allegations made by parties to the dispute may also include exhibits produced in court, which could range from the original will to copies of parish register entries and private diaries. Records relating to disputes heard in the PCC are found across a number of series in PROB, with depositions divided into town depositions, those taken in London, and country depositions, those taken outside of London. Allegations, answers and depositions, as well as case or cause papers, are indexed by name of the deceased and the parties to the dispute, either on discovery or in a paper index. For a guide to the PCC record series relating to disputes and the available indexes to look at if you think your will might have been disputed, again, see Granum and Taylor's book. For litigation in other church courts, records of disputes may be catalogued only in more general terms and you may need to search the church court testamentary dispute records by date. Disputes may have also ended up in the equity or common law courts, rather than the relevant church court, particularly those relating to large and valuable estates. Chancery, the most important of the equity courts, generally heard cases relating to the interpretation of wills and matters arising out of their content, which could go on for some time, and in some cases when they related to legacies or trusts affecting children and grandchildren, only commenced years after the grant of probate or administration. Chancery records are held at the National Archives, Department Reference C, and are catalogued by the names of the parties to a case. The common law courts, including the Court of King's Bench and the Court of Common Pleas, dealt with disputes concerning freehold land and other common law matters, and heard some will disputes too. The records of these courts are also at the National Archives in Department References KB and CP respectively. Again, for a guide to relevant series within these court records and how to search them, Granum and Taylor's book uh, has some useful tables. These records can be extremely rich in detail, though of course you must remember that there may be some distortion of the truth in the claims made by opposing parties. Deponents were required to give their age, occupation, place of residence and place of birth although ages are often imprecise, which can be a problem for family history researchers. To demonstrate the search process for dispute records, and give an example of the detail and number of records you may find in a will dispute, I'm going to briefly look at the disputed will of William Eve of Loudwater or Louthwater, Rickmansworth, Middlesex. You can see a discovery search within the Prob 11 will series gives three results for this man, two wills and a sentence. Reference to a sentence in probate records is an indication that the judge delivered a final judgment in a disputed case. There wasn't always a judgment as sometimes the parties resolved their dispute without the issue of a judgment by the judge and the church court acted merely as an arbitrator in those cases. For the PCC records the sentences are filed with the copy wills in prob 11 and are available online through discovery. The sentence was delivered a full six years after the proving of the will, which itself was several years after William Eve's death. So it looks like this was a lengthy case. So, extending the search to all the PCC records outside of Prob 11, we can see that the dispute was of Burroughs v. Belch, and there are allegations relating to the dispute in other series within Prob besides the sentence which was with the will in Prob 11. Cases may have been heard by more than one court, and as we can see, that the sentence was delivered some time after the case was heard in the PCC. It seems possible that the case was later held elsewhere before the final judgment was issued. As the records of the Equity and Common Law Courts are usually catalogued only by the names of the parties and not by a testator, I'm going to run the search again for Burroughs v Belch across all records of the National Archives to see if we can find any other relevant records. So now I can see that there are allegations from the Court of Chancery as well as cause papers from the High Court of Delegates for the right names and the right period at which it might be worth us taking a look. Looking at the dates of all these different records, it appears that Mr Burroughs first took the case to Chancery, then to the PCC Testamentary Court, and then at appeal to the High Court of Delegates. These were original documents, so to find out whether they're all related and how the case is proceeded, we need to order them up. The chancery allegations show that Robert Burroughs, who describes himself as a cousin German to the deceased, that is, a first cousin or near relative, alleges that Eve had lacked the mental capacity at the time of his death, or indeed from his infancy, to have made the will, which he claims had instead been forged by James Belch, another relative. The PCC allegations provide even richer detail in the accompanying exhibits produced to support Burroughs' claim of relatedness to William Eve which include extracts from parish registers, extracts of a number of Burroughs and Eve family wills, and copies of deeds and manor court records, both in Latin and in English translation, helpfully, going back as far as the mid-17th century, relating to the descent of land in the family. So in this one court case, you've got many related records for the family. The descriptions given by Burroughs of how William Eve's behaviour manifested his mental deficiencies are also captivating... However, despite his descriptions of how the deceased would wander the neighbourhood in filthy garb, collecting live rabbits in a barrow, and his extensive and detailed descriptions of family relationships, the records showed that in all three of the court cases, the court found against Burroughs and in favour of Belch, finally leading in 1795 to Burroughs' excommunication by the High Court of Delegates for non-payment after Belch was awarded costs. Clearly, his case that William Eve was un- of unsound mind was unconvincing, but the records of the case, including associated exhibits, are a rich resource for those researching the families concerned. I've concentrated so far on the probate system pre-1858 because this can seem a lot more complex and daunting to research, but of course many of you will be looking for wills proved after this date. The Court of Probate Act, which became operative in January 1858, brought to an end the jurisdiction of the old ecclesiastical courts and instituted a centralised secular system in their place, which in 1875 became part of the Probate, Divorce and Admiralty Division of the High Court. Under this system, probate is granted at a local district registry, but the records are kept centrally at the principal probate registry, which keeps a copy of every will proved, as well as letters of administration. They produce an index called the National Probate Calendar, which gives details of the value of estate and the local registry at which probate or administration was granted. You can search the calendar for 1848 up to 1966 on Ancestry, which is accessible free here in the search rooms at Kew. The calendar can also be viewed on Feeshore Film up to the mid-20th century at the London Family History Centre and other family search centres and at a number of record offices and libraries across the UK. Again, remember that the indexes are arranged not by date of death but date of probate, then in alphabetical order within each year. The indexes provide useful detail on the deceased, including full name and last address, date of death, type of grant issued, and place and date of issue, as well as the value of the estate. This is an entry for the will of my, uh, my favouritely named ancestor, onisiferus Nice. In, in this particular case, you can see that an, an administration with will annexed was granted at the Bury St Edmunds District Registry. Using this information, I would be able to order a copy of the probate record from the Principal Probate Registry, or a district registry in person or by post. Here at Kew, I could also view the record copy of the will on microfilm at the London Family History Centre, which holds record copy wills from the district probate registries for 1858 to 1925. The system of inventorying and accounting ceased with the involvement of the church courts, so you will not find these kinds of related records for wills after 1858. Under the new system, litigation over disputed wills was brought before the Court of Probate and its successors, although some cases did continue to be heard by Chancery, and later the Chancery Division of the Supreme Court, so few records relating to contentious probate cases after 1858 are held at the National Archives. There are some small samples of case files in the Supreme Court records, which are searchable by names of test data and parties but newspaper cases and law reports may be more useful for your search for a disputed will in this period. The death duty system, however, did not change with the introduction of the new probate system in 1858, so death duty records relating to both pre- and post-1858 wills and administrations are held here at the National Archives. There had been a flat-rate probate (coughs) duty in operation for higher-value estates since the late 17th century, but it was not until 1796 that the first of a new series of state taxes on inherited wealth or death duties was implemented across England and Wales. Records of the duties levied, known as legacy, succession and estate duties, which were introduced under successive legislation creating new categories of taxable estate, were kept in so-called death duty registers, which are in series IR26. The original legacy duty from 1796 was imposed only on estates valued at £20 or over and not on bequests to direct relatives of the deceased. In practice, despite the threshold, the duty often wasn't collected unless the estate was closer to £1,500 in value, although a brief record would still be made of the estate in the register. With inflation, more people gradually came within the taxable bands and the system was further expanded to remove the original exemptions for family. By 1805 any estate passing to the deceased children was made taxable and in 1815 the deceased's parents were made liable with only the spouse remaining exempt. So whilst in 1805 only about a quarter of all wills and administrations were subject to death duties, by 1815 about three quarters were included in the registers and by 1857 there should be an entry for all estates worth more than £20. Because of the level of detail they contain, These two are a valuable resource for family history. The registers record details of the deceased and their estate, including the value, details of legacies, probate and the executors, and often record details of beneficiaries, including, helpfully for family historians, their relationship to the deceased. Where they can also be of immense use is in subsequent annotations, sometimes made years after the original payment, such as dates of death for a spouse or marriage of a beneficiary, as well as information relating to a court case if the will was disputed. You can see that for the entry relating to the will of John Joseph Cotton of Clifton in Bristol, there are many annotations added in red ink after the original 1858 entry relating to dates of death of beneficiaries. This one, for example, notes that Mary R. P. Cotton, his daughter, died on the 25th of October 1932, which is nearly 70 years after the, uh, the original will. The registers for the pre-1858 period are in two groups, for the PCC and the country courts, that is the rest of the church courts. The will abstracts in the country court registers for 1796 to 1811 have been digitised. So if you know that your ancestor's will was proved outside of the PCC during this period, then you can search by the register entry for name in the Our Online Records section of the website. So the entry for Hannah Whitehouse of Sedgley in Staffordshire, whose will was proved at Lichfield and whose estate was valued at under £3,500, which names several of her cousins as beneficiaries, as well as her servant Sarah Morley, <laughs> to whom she left £50 in a suit of mourning. For other wills and administrations, that is, those proved in the county courts between 1811 and 1858, those proved in the PCC and all post-1858 records, you can locate the relevant entry in the death duty registers by first searching the indexes to the registers in IR27, which are available online at Find My Past, accessible free in the search rooms here at Kew. The indexes identify which church court granted the original probate or administration and are searchable by surname only, so you may need to go through a few results to establish which entry relates to the person you're looking for. Here I'm looking for the entry for Theophile Littleton, whose will was proved in the PCC in 1834. So there's a couple there which I'd need to try to, to see if the first name is correct. The fact that the will was proved at the PCC is indicated in the court column by PC. There are also entries on this page for wills proved at Chester Consistory Court and the PCY. The index entry will give you a folio reference to the corresponding register. Look at the IR26 catalogue on discovery to convert it and identify the relevant death duty register. Earlier registers can be viewed on microfilm in the Research and Inquiries room just out here and later registers are orderable as original documents. Remember, too, that you may find material relating to wills in many and varied other collections. Extracts of a will may have been recorded in parish records if they included a charitable bequest, or may have been enrolled in legal papers. The wills of men serving in the military were sometimes deposited with their authorities, so there are collections of soldiers' and sailors' wills in both the War Office and Admiralty collections here at the National Archives. There is also some probate material for former British consulates held here at Kew in the Foreign Office series, with a name index available in the library. Personal collections, particularly of wealthy and landed families, may include correspondence relating to a will or the original will itself, so use the evidence you have obtained from other records to direct your search. I'm quickly going to cover the situation in Scotland and and Ireland. Unlike in England and Wales, the Scottish inheritance system has always been a civil process since the Reformation, Confusingly, a couple of the terms used in England and Wales describe slightly different things in Scotland. In Scotland, testament is a collective term referring to all the documents relating to the executory of a deceased person. Every testament includes an inventory of the dead person's property and a minority include a will. Where there is a will, the documents known as the testament testamentar, that's the equivalent of English probate, If there's no will, it's called a testament dative, the equivalent of English letters of administration. In comparisons with levels of will-making in England and Wales, very few Scots left testaments. The equivalent to granting of administration or probate was for the testament to be confirmed in a court. The courts which oversaw the process until 1824, when they were replaced by sheriff courts, were called commissary courts, although they weren't ecclesiastical courts as in England and Wales. Commissary court boundaries roughly corresponded to those of the pre-Reformation dioceses. Like south of the border, testaments of those holding property in more than one jurisdiction were dealt with by a higher court, the Edinburgh Commissary Court, which would also confirm testaments for Scots who died outside Scotland until 1858 when the procedure of probates resealed was introduced, meaning that probate or administration could be granted locally and the grant sent to the Edinburgh Commissary. The records for the whole of mainland Scotland and the Western Isles are easy to search and are available online for the years 1513 to 1925 at the Scotland's People website, along with records of probates resealed up to 1901. In Ireland, probate and administration were granted through a similar church court system to that which operated in England and Wales, but unfortunately most of the records for the period prior to 1858 were destroyed in the 1922 Civil War. However, many had been indexed prior to their loss and you can view the indexes at the National Library of Ireland or for those that have been published through a library service. Some Irish estates from 1812 to 1857, which were liable for estate duty and which were proved in the English courts, are in the IR26 death duty registers and can be searched using the IR27 indexes as I've just described. Do have a look at our online research guides on the National Archives website or in the search rooms, and of course, ask the staff at the inquiry desks if you need any advice or assistance in queue. This talk was recorded on the 10th of January 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyrighted at the National Archives. All rights reserved.